All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all again, and we're enjoying very much being with you and uh, just growing and learning in God's Word together, right? Our text this morning is John 3, the end of John 3, and we're coming to uh, kind of a end of the first section of John's gospel. We're going to see a bit of a bookmark here. John chapter 1, he talked to us about this character known as John the Baptist, and we read that and say, there were Baptists all the way back there? Uh, no, actually, not quite yet. We might better call him John the one baptizing, John the baptizer. It's not a denominational title. And then here in chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to revisit uh, John the baptizer again and his testimony uh, to Jesus Christ. I'm entitling this text and this message, All Eyes on the Bridegroom. A fellow by the name of Dr. Paul Mullen wrote a children's book several years ago, 2011, uh, entitled, The Day I Hit a Home Run at Great American Ballpark. Now, some of you men may have read books like that when you were in the sixth grade and and these sports hero stories. Uh, Dr. Mullen wrote this children's book and then went on a book tour, and the book tour was called The Every Child Dreams of Greatness book tour. He went all over the United States back in the year 2011, went to libraries and elementary schools, and at each book signing, he would ask representatives from each grade of elementary school kids to stand in front of the group and describe their special dream. Well, most spoke of sports, no big surprise here in the United States. A first grade girl said she dreamed of someday being able to boss her parents around. And her classmate said he dreamed of having five younger brothers. He only had one at that point. Presumably, he wanted someone to boss around as well. Do you remember what your childhood dream was about? I remember mine. I grew up in southern Indiana, farm country, where every red barn had a basketball hoop clear on the front of it, And most of the uh, haylofts in our county, the upstairs, we weren't holding hay there. There were two basketball hoops, and we had a full court with a wooden floor so you could play ball in the winter. And and my dream always kind of went like this. It was the last game. It was like the movie Hoosiers, if you've seen the movie Hoosiers. It was the last game of the Indiana State High School Boys Basketball Championship. We were in Hinkle Field House in downtown Indianapolis, and my team was playing for the championship, and it was the last few seconds of the game, and a timeout had been called, and we were down by just a point, and the coach called a play. Guess who the ball was going to be thrown to? Yours truly, in my dream. And every time, the dream always came out the same, the daydream, that is. I was going to receive the ball at just the right moment, fake my opponent and move him out of my way, let off a perfect form jump shot that would swish through the net, and we win the championship, and the crowd goes wild, and they carry Sam out on their shoulders at the end of the the championship. That was my dream. Dream. Lots of the, the as the seasons changed, the sports changed, but the end result was always the same. In my daydream, I was being lauded as the sports hero of Indiana. I was, I was the celebrity. I was the champion. And I don't know what uh, your daydream as a child was about. Maybe you wanted to be a 
I don't know, a soccer player or a hockey star or a singer at the Met or an Indian princess or a boxer or a soldier or a scientist. There's a lot of variety in our human daydreams. My little brother wanted to be a garbage collector. That was his dream at the age of five. When asked why he chose that, he said it's because it looks like these guys have great fun hanging on the back of the truck riding around town all day. So that was his, his life dream. Well, John is now coming to the end of this first section, as I said, and he's been showing us, he's arguing with us why we should believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He's, he's demonstrating that Jesus is superior to anything Judaism had to offer. Jesus takes the water from the Jewish purification ritual there at the wedding of Cana, and he turns that into new wine. There's something deeper, something more, more profound, something more effective for people's cleansing, not just on the outside but from the inside in this Messiah, Jesus. He's the replacement of the temple in John 2, God with us, the one who's going to rip that veil between the most holy place and the outer courts in two from top to bottom, granting us access into relationship with God as forgiven and cleansed people. In John 3, as we studied last week, Jesus is the one who provides the cleansing, the inner spiritual cleansing of water and spirit. And today we're going to see this interaction with John the Baptist. John the Apostle, the author of the gospel, is going to quote for us some things John the Baptizer says. And in this comment by John, in this interaction between him and his disciples, I want you to think with me about your childhood dream, and this human tendency in every one of our hearts to be longing to be truly great, to be a celebrity, there's something in that deep-seated human longing that's going to run counter. It's going to collide with what God is doing in His world to set His Son on the throne that all people would come to know and honor and worship Him. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we dive into the text. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, grant us. And what we are not, make us. By your Spirit and in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the uh, story we pick up here in verse 22 and following, and like any good story, we have a setting. So let's read the setting here in verse 22 to 24. It says that then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Jesus, the creator God of the universe who took on flesh and is tabernacling, living among his people, he's he's just hanging out with them. He's just doing life with them. He's spending time with them. It's a beautiful model for discipling, right? And we read that baptizing, Jesus is baptizing. Now, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to find out it wasn't actually Jesus personally doing the baptizing. It was his disciples doing the baptizing, but still Jesus is the one directing it. 
And verse 23, at this time, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. Now, our Anabaptist forebears did us a great service when in the uh, early days they began studying the Greek New Testament and uh, discovered something that the church had kind of gotten off track with, and that is that the Greek word baptizo, sounds like our English word baptize, right? Baptizo, here's what it means in the Greek language in any setting. Dip, dunk, bury, cover, submerge, immerse. That's what it means, okay? Now, the King James translators, the translators of the authorized version, uh, in my opinion, they did the English-speaking peoples of the world a bit of a disservice when, when they were working through the Greek text and they came to the Greek word baptizo, and they thought, now, if we translate that, dip, dunk, bury, cover, submerge, immerse, our benefactor, King James, who is Anglican, who practices sprinkling, is not going to be happy with us. But we can't say it's not dip, dunk, bury, cover, submerge, immerse, because it is. And so here's what they did. Let's take the Greek letters and just bring them over into English letters. Baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-E. We've got a new word in English. What does the word baptize mean in English? Well, from there on, what would you like it to mean? <laughs> but the original text says, dip, dunk, bury, cover, submerge, immerse. It's pretty clear, all right? And John tells us they chose this place about halfway between the Gal- Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. They chose this place because there was plenty of water there, which again is an indication of what's going on. And then John, is, he wants us to know that he's aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their Gospels have written, and he says this was before John was thrown into prison. He's, he's setting us back chronologically and pointing to this time in John's life. Obviously, this was before he was in prison because he's still performing his ministry. Now, the, the Jewish people were very familiar with this concept of dipping something in water as ceremonial cleansing or purification. A couple years ago, we were over in Israel and in a a home that was believed to have been somewhere near the first century. And in that home, there was actually, uh, um, on the edge of the living quarters, there was actually a deep baptismal pool. It was like a, a, a baptismal tank built right into the ground, where uh, it was believed that, this, that the Jewish people would practice this even in their, their daily life, this bathing in cold water, not to get dirt off, but as a symbolic ritual cleansing. It was, it was a way, and they didn't just dip their bodies, they washed their hands and they dipped their utensils and their plates and what have you. And all of that as a, a, a symbol that we are the covenant people. We are the ones who have been cleansed by virtue of our Jewishness. We are in right relationship with God. So they were, they were very familiar with this, this baptism idea, putting something underwater to symbolize cleansing, though they really thought, you know, we're, what it had become, by Jesus' time at least, was we're really not in need of major overhaul cleansing in our lives by virtue of the fact we're born Jewish. 
And along comes John the Baptist and begins preaching a very different message about baptism. He is saying to them, you think by dipping yourselves in water that you are, you know, making this certain that you are the covenant chosen people of God? No, he says, I'm preaching a baptism of repentance. And there's, there's, there's a need that all of you have, John is saying, as God's people, as Jewish people, you need to acknowledge the sinfulness of your heart and the separation that that sin has brought between you and your creator God, the one true God, and you need to be cleansed from the inside out, something water on the outside cannot handle, and it caused quite a kerfluffle. As you remember, the, the leaders of, of the Jewish nation come out, and they're confronting John about what he's preaching. He's saying, yeah, who warned you guys to flee uh, the wrath to come? He had some very strong words for these religious leaders who were leading the people astray. But this idea of a symbolic cleansing, and we're seeing now an overlap between the preaching of John and pointing to Jesus, as we learned back in John chapter 1, and now Jesus himself beginning his ministry, preaching, and and people coming to him. So, everything's good, right? Both teachers are in the Judean countryside. People are coming. People are responding to the message, and all's good, right? Well, any good story has conflict, and so does this one. And the conflict comes, we read here in verse 25, by virtue of a bit of a debate that breaks out, notice there, between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. Now, some Greek texts say the Jews, probably the best attested reading says a certain guy, a certain Jew, uh, they, they were having a debate. So the, the disciples of John, his attendants, those folks who had responded to his preaching, who may have even been assisting with baptizing people who have come uh, professing their repentance, their, their confession, they need cleansing from the inside out, and their belief that this Messiah John has been talking about is coming. You know, they were preparing for that. Uh, this Jewish person comes, and we don't know what the debate exactly was, but it, in my mind, I imagine it to be something like this. So the Jewish guy says, you're telling me that because I'm a Jew, that that's not enough? You're, you're telling me by this new baptism that you guys are practicing that, that I have to like repent like a Gentile proselyte would to become a Jew? Like, I'm already born a Jew. And I I have practiced these ritual cleansing my whole life. Now, a a proselyte, a Gentile, you know, if they wanted to become a Jew, there would be three things required if you're a man, two if you're a woman. If you're a man, you would have to submit to circumcision. Then you would have to submit to baptism, this immersion in water as a symbol of this cleansing that you needed. And then you would have to offer sacrifice. So, no, the, the Jewish people were very familiar with this whole idea of baptism, and the debate breaks out about what it means. John, you're saying that we're, being Jews is not good enough, that we, we need to repent, you know, like the Gentiles. Well, perhaps that little conversation got these disciples of John thinking about John's that maybe there is something off with this. I, I don't know. And then you add to that the fact what they're going to talk about next, 
there are actually more people now going to hear Jesus than coming to hear you. And so look at what they say next. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, the, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, they, they, they identify, they remind him, you remember that guy? You, you identified him as the Messiah. That guy? Yeah, okay. Well, he's, he's also baptizing people. Kind of implies he's cutting in on our territory here. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Now, I inflected my voice in such a way there that it sounds like this was pretty negative, what they were saying. Now, some scholars would say, well, no, no, we're reading in too much there. They, they might have actually been saying something positive. Like, Master, uh, Rabbi, you, you remember the guy you identified as Messiah? Yeah, and you said, you know, he, you're an arrow pointing to him, and he's going to baptize people with the Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that guy, guess what? He's baptizing people now, and everybody's coming to him. Matter of fact, more people are going to him than are going to us. What you said would happen, it's happening. That's not what they're saying, <laughs> okay? Because if you read it that way, what John says next makes no sense. He's actually going to confront and rebuke because what they are exposing right now, these disciples of John, what they are exposing is a human heart that has this deep, deep longing for being great. Now, you've got to be careful you don't psychologize characters in the text when the authors of Scripture don't say, and here's what they were thinking in their hearts. All right, I understand that. But because of what John responds to them with, that we'll see in just a second, I, I think we can make a case. This, these folks are upset because Jesus is cutting in on their territory. You know, There's something deep down in the human spirit that longs, like those childhood daydreams that we've all had. There's something in all of our hearts that wants to be a celebrity. It's, it's what the American culture is all, it's, it's what makes it go, right, in our, in our world today. That's what Facebook is about. I mean, Facebook, right? I want you to know what I had for breakfast and that it was epic, this breakfast. No one ever had a breakfast like this, right? So everybody go, wow, look what Sam had for breakfast. If you get on Facebook, you will never see me there, okay? <laughs> I have an account, and I never look at it. My wife will occasionally say, you have like 3,000 friend requests, and you're, you need to respond to some of these people. Um, so if you friend me, don't expect a quick response, <laughs> all right? But um, American Idol. America's got talent. America's got people who have idols, okay? Uh, all of these shows are all based on this insatiable drive to be someone special. Hollywood actors and actresses, I'm not saying this is true of every one of them, but many of them, they have, they have paid a dear price in their life in order to attain celebrity. A, a serial murderer, for that matter, is driven by this same impulse. I want to be known. I want to be someone great. I want to be a celebrity. And if I personally am not able to pull this off, then vicariously by what I'm attached to, if they succeed or if my teacher succeeds, I'm a follower of John and everybody's coming. Man, it's a heady time. I'm with him, you know, is kind of the feel. And now 
Something's threatening that. Something's colliding with that. We're not going to be the biggest thing in town anymore, right? It's what makes politics work. Ample ample illustrations in our culture, right, and all around the world. Well, there's nothing wrong with having dreams. There's nothing wrong with pursuing your dreams. There's nothing wrong with working hard and having ambition and except to what end? And if our goal as humans is we want to be someone great, we want to be with someone great, right? It's what what makes sports fans so rabid. Philadelphia Eagles fans. Several years ago, if you're an Eagles fan, you know, praise the Lord, I love you. I'm from Indianapolis and a Colts fan, and no one warned me when I went to the Eagles game at the Vet Stadium years ago, not to wear my Colts jersey and hat, which I did. And there have been a, just a couple of times in my life when I feared physical, physically for my safety. And that was one of them. That was one of them, right? So why is it those people are so, so caught up with the success of this team? And why is it that on Super Bowl Sunday, when the, in the region where the losing team's fans live, that as soon as the game is over, spousal abuse goes off the charts. Why is that? Well, it's because the team through which that guy is living vicariously just failed, thereby threatening his sense of greatness, and so I'm going to lash out and hurt somebody close to me. So, that's the conflict. Now, how is the baptizer going to respond? And we're going to see here a beautiful reversal. John, instead of saying, well, I mean, what do you think he might say? Uh, really? Every, ah, oh, come on. Everybody's going to him instead of us? Got to start preaching better or something, you know? No, look what John says. This is a pretty strong putting them in their place. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. In other words, um, God is about saving this lost world, and he set this grand redemptive um, act into, into progress, and, and everybody has a role to play, and God gives people those roles. And there's only one Messiah saving the world. There are lots of people that can point to him, but there's only one Messiah. And some people get more responsibility and public kind of roles, and other people get vaccine kind of roles. But everybody's role is equally important except the Messiah. That's super important. And everybody's role matters to God, and not everybody can be the Messiah. John is saying, what God has given to each person they got from heaven. He goes on. He says, uh, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. I'm pointing to him. And look at this metaphor that he now brings up. He says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Now, in in John's day, a little bit different than weddings in our day. I mean, even the title for the sermon, All Eyes on the Bride, 
groom, that kind of comes as a surprise, right? Because in our culture, it's all eyes on the bride, right? I don't know how you do weddings here, but probably she comes in right back there between those two doors. And when those doors open, whoever's standing up here doesn't matter anymore, right? Everybody turns, and there's like a collective gasp. (sighs) Isn't she beautiful, right? Well, The bride in this imagery is also important, and Israel was referred to as the bride of Yahweh, and the church, God's people in our day and age, they're described as the bride of the Lamb. But John is saying the bridegroom is the big deal, and he says, I'm the best man. Now, in that day, it's like saying, I'm the wedding planner. The best man today is like an honorary title. You have to write a speech and, you know, use the mic and introduce some people. Pretty, pretty easy to do. You can kind of like show up on the spot and do it. The friend of the bridegroom in John's day had a lot more responsibility. He was like the agent representing the bridegroom with the family, negotiating the dowry, bride price, all of that, uh, even uh, right down to uh, bringing the, the bride and the bridegroom together into the wedding chamber so that the relationship could be consummated. There was a lot going on here, and John is saying, you, you guys are you're acting like that me as the friend of the bridegroom, I should be the one front and center getting all the attention. He's like, no, that's not the way it works. The bridegroom has come. I've been pointing to him, and so I'm filled with joy. It's a powerful word here. I'm filled with joy that I'm like a star in the morning beginning to fade, and he's like the blazing sun rising in the sky and illuminating everything. John's like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Look at what he says in verse 30. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John doesn't have a self-image problem. He doesn't hate himself, okay? But what he's saying is this. He he uses this phrase in the Greek. It's literally, it is necessary. It must happen. It is necessary. Earlier in chapter 3, you must. It is necessary to be born again. The word is used there. A little later in chapter 3, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent was in the wilderness. Same word used there. It is necessary. God has willed this. And, now John says, this also is necessary that Jesus, the ancient of days, the Son of Man, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies has come to us. Everything's been pointing to him. He's here. My life has been pointing to him. He's here. And we must celebrate that. What John is saying, and it's not like, well, Jesus is already great, right? He's God. He's the God-man. How can you become greater? Well, he's talking about humanity acknowledging his greatness. That must keep increasing until all history funnels into this beautiful panoply of praise. We just sang about it. Your praise will ever be on our lips. People from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity and nation from all over the world joining together to say, you are worthy. And all of our human pursuits toward greatness, toward being someone, nothing wrong with chasing a dream so long as at the end of the day we're saying all that that we enjoy by God's grace, it's a gift, and we turn it back to him, 
And we say the purpose of our life, the purpose of our work, the purpose of our ministry is to point to Jesus and say, you are peerless. (laughs) You alone are worthy. What John is saying is the divine solution to the human problem we all have. We all want to be someone great. There's a longing in our heart for greatness, for sign- to be connected with something that matters, that's significant. And the idolatrous nature of our fallen hearts, we always find other things to make us feel fulfilled in that way. John is saying, here's what God has done. The, the one whose life fulfills all that you long for in terms of greatness, being connected to Jesus, the Messiah, whose praise will be sung throughout eternity, that's the only thing that can scratch the itch in every one of our hearts. And so John says it is necessary that he increase, but I become less and less, as it should be the praise of Christ. Now, the story concludes with a bit of a commentary here by John. So let's look at this in closing. As we talked about last week, back in verse 16, some of the red letter Bibles kept the red letters going to say that Jesus was still speaking. Make a pretty good argument that actually John, the author of the gospel, starts speaking in verse 16. And again, here in verse 31, Uh, John the baptizer has finished his speech. He must become greater and greater. And now John the author starts speaking again. And listen what he says. He's going to give us a commentary about the surpassing greatness of Jesus the Messiah. Let's just read all all five verses here. "He He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son, isn't that interesting? It's juxtaposing if you believe, you're obeying. If you don't believe, you're disobeying. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. That verse 36, the text that Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was based upon. What a commentary. John is saying, you know what? Jesus came from heaven. He's greater than anyone who originated here on earth. Jesus' testimony about God, it's authoritative. What he says is true. All authority has been given to him, even though people may not accept it. Jesus himself is the living, breathing expression of the triune God. The Father has given all things into his hand. The Father who loves his Son and the Spirit upon him without limit. So therefore, John says, Jesus is surpassingly great, and that's where we find the fulfillment of this deep longing that's in all our hearts. Well, this is the lesson I want to send you away thinking about 
here this morning. And let this just settle down in your heart for a minute. I was not created to pursue visions of my own greatness. And and no amount of investment in that pursuit is going to bring joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction to my life. No, we were created to rest, to worship, to adore the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, this problem of uh, humans replacing a pursuit of the glory and honor of Christ with some lesser pursuit like our own, you know, desire to be epic and celebrity, it's not just out there in the world that this happens, right? It's right here in our own, our own families, right? It's in the church, dare I say, those who profess to lead the church, to serve the church, who call themselves by the title minister. Too many times it's become very apparent that those individuals are more about building a kingdom for themselves than a kingdom the kingdom of Christ, to glorify and, and worship him. I would have to admit that sometimes in my family, my relationship with Elaine or with my kids or grandkids, if they watched me carefully and listened to my words, they might say something like, I think Sam's more into building his own kingdom here. You know, he wants people to serve him. He wants people to declare his greatness. You may not struggle with that. I struggle with it all the time. Instead of my life being laid down in service to the great bridegroom, Jesus, not caring who gets the credit, but longing to bring the glory and honor to him. Last week, we um, contrasted the only two religions there are in the world. There's the doing religion and the done religion. Can I just revisit that and say, I think the doing religion, that corresponds here in this text to human dreams of greatness. I'm going to earn my way to heaven and everybody's going to know, you know, we can boast, right? Except the scripture makes it clear, no one's earning their way to heaven like that. It's only what Christ has done. And so when we rest in the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, John says, you have eternal life. And the coming wrath of God that is going to be so horrific that people are going to call out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to end their suffering, John says, you you won't face that. But if you disobey and not rest in the surpassing greatness of Christ by believing what he's done for you in his life and death and resurrection, then um, you're still under that. So we would plead with you today, friends. If you're here today and you've not yet made that step of believing in Christ, by the gracious working of His Spirit, we would plead with you, come today under the greatness of Christ and escape the coming wrath of God. Let me just close with this question for those of you brothers and sisters who you know there's a time in your life when you trusted Christ as your Savior. You know you're resting there in His greatness. This past week, just by observing you, the people closest to you, if they were asked the question, based on his or her 
attitudes, words, actions, whose greatness is he into pursuing? Whose greatness is she all about protecting? Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess to you that we are all in need of cleansing from the inside out. We are born sinners and we've chosen to sin, and yet in your mercy and love and grace, you sent Jesus to become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so I pray for my friends here today who may not yet have come to rest in the greatness of who Jesus is, that today would be the day they open their heart and believe. And for all of us, your children, may this be a reminder. May this be our our life motto. You must become greater and greater. And we gladly lay down our lives and our notoriety and our celebrity and our opportunity to become great. We lay it down in praise and worship of the one who saved us by his death, by his resurrection. These things we pray, trusting your spirit to continue working in us. And we pray with thankful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.